Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, June 23rd. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a look inside a COVID vaccine trial at Hattiesburg Clinic. Then, is the Gulf Coast climate ready for a new fruit? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Trials for coronavirus vaccines are still ongoing, including here in Mississippi. The Hattiesburg Clinic began its trial of the Moderna shot in the summer of 2020. Dr. Rambod Rubash is a family practice physician at the clinic, and Dr. Anita Henderson is a pediatrician there. They spoke with MPB reporter Kobe Vance. Here's Rubash. The trial is like any trial. It's designed to look at the safety and efficacy of a new intervention. In this case, um, for our particular study site, it's the Moderna mRNA vaccines. And we are um, evaluating the entire age group, um, starting with the six-month and above age group, all the way through to the adults. We've had um, each phase of the clinical trial here at the Haysburg Clinic and Medicine Clinical Trials. So It is an ongoing study in that the people that participate are monitored for at least two years afterwards. Um, Our enrollment of new people has closed. We have enough people in the study nationwide to not add new people, but we continue to evaluate the people that have enrolled and volunteered for the trial by checking on them to see how they're doing in terms of antibody levels, to check on them to see whether they get COVID, and to check on them to see if they have any side effects. What are your hopes from running these trials in Mississippi and being able to talk with Mississippi patients? Well, the goals are to provide or to assess the efficacy of an intervention to help prevent both the acquisition of COVID-19 and um, diminish the severity of the disease while also proving safety. So those are the fundamental goals of any vaccine study, and they have been thankfully um, effective and thankfully very, very safe. So um, what we can 
conclusively um, tell people is that these vaccines have been studied in depth. They have been proven to be efficacious and they've been proven to be safe. And uh, we have the people that were willing to volunteer to be members of this trial here in Mississippi to thank for helping um, obtain this level of information for all of us and to help prove that these remedies are available and safe for all of us to use. How things been going so far? Um, what have been the reactions from the patients that have come in to participate in the trials? Yeah, this is a, a group of people that is unique in the clinical trial world in that they're super um, gung-ho and they are um, very, very excited to make a difference in the world. Um, usually clinical trials are niche little um, particular pharmaceutical or diagnostic interventions that affect a very small group of people. This is a very different thing where Almost everyone and anyone um, is able to participate, and there's a real sense of esprit de corps of we're doing uh, what we can in the fight against this pandemic. And the people that have been um, involved have been enthusiastic. They have been um, eager. They have been fantastic in terms of follow-up. This particular trial has had many twists and turns with amendments, with um, unblinding um, and allowing people to know uh, whether they got placebo or not. There's an open label phase that came about afterwards. So um, it's been complicated but people have been really fantastic. And from a clinical research standpoint, it's been an honor to be a part of it because it has just been so much more um, inclusive of the entire population compared to uh, what we normally see. And so I've been really honored and proud to be a part of it. Going to Dr. Henderson, I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about being able to participate in this trial at the Hattiesburg Clinic? And, um, and what has it been like for pediatric patients? We have had pediatric patients who have been very excited to participate in this trial. As Dr. Rubash said, they want to um, be part of the solution. They want their children to be part of the solution. And I've even had colleagues throughout the state who had young children ask how they could possibly participate here in the Hattiesburg um, because they may have been pediatric infectious disease doctors in Jackson or other sorts of uh, physicians throughout the state who are, are seeing the con consequences and complications of COVID and want children, young children, to be immunized. So our patients have benefited from the investigations that have been done through Hattiesburg Clinic, and they are thankful to have participated and thankful to have been part of um, future efforts to get the vaccine, um, find out the safety and data information, and then um, now they're proud to be able to uh, be part of getting it to the rest of the country. Now that the vaccines have been out for a, a while in Mississippi for many Mississippians, how do you see uh, the research that's been continuing throughout that time benefiting those who either have already gotten vaccinated or will continue to get vaccinated? That's an excellent question. Um, there's a number of things. Um, one is continued safety information. The 
the people that are enrolled are actively monitored for symptoms and side effects um, so we can get that information out quickly should anything change. Um, the second is efficacy. So these participants are uh, donating their blood and we're looking at their antibody levels. And over time, there may be um, boosters given to them, as has been the case with the people that have participated thus far. And we can see how well those boosters work and how long they'll last. Um, there may be a variant-specific uh, booster down the road. And so we'll have uh, more opportunity to get information um, because of the people that have been enrolled in this trial and be able to adjust as this virus adjusts. And Dr. Henderson, I wanted to come back to you. What do you see this trial meaning for children going forward as we continue to try to get out from the pandemic and return to more normal lives? I think this Moderna trial should um, give parents uh, confidence in the fact that this vaccine is both safe and effective. We have had, unfortunately, 13 children in Mississippi die of COVID over the last two years. Um, nationally, we've had almost 500 children under the age of five die from COVID. We have also seen an uptick over the last several weeks in COVID cases here in Mississippi, as we have nationally. And so this vaccine is just another tool that parents can use to protect their children, protect their families, to protect their grandparents, um, not only from immediate cases of COVID, but also from long-term complications such as multi-system inflammatory syndrome that we've talked about in the past, such as long COVID, which is something we also happen to see in children, unfortunately. So now that we have a safe and effective tool, now that families know that Hattiesburg, Mississippi was part of the group um, in the trials of this vaccine. I hope that parents discuss uh, the COVID vaccine, whether it's the Moderna or the Pfizer product, with their pediatrician, with their family practice doctor, so they can understand the benefits of getting their young children vaccinated. That's Dr. Anita Henderson and Dr. Rambod Rubosh of the Hattiesburg Clinic. Coming up, is the Gulf of, does the Gulf Coast climate ready for a new fruit? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Guidry. Climate change is awful in innumerable ways, and it's already affecting the Gulf Coast as sea levels rise and weather gets more chaotic. But even the catastrophe of a warming atmosphere does have minor benefits. In Mississippi, it may open the door for farmers to start producing a fruit that's never grown here before. Eric Staffney is a fruit and nut specialist at the Mississippi State Extension Service. He speaks with Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane. Passion fruit is a tropical fruit, and once you get below about 28 degrees, it, it will die, or at least die back to the ground. So um, as we get winters that are warmer, and especially along the coast, and I would say you know south of I-10 is the area where it would be most likely to be successful, is the region where you could start to think about growing some, some of the tropical passion fruit. Is there a market for passion fruit? Is there a reason for farmers to be interested in growing it? 
Well, I think there is a market. Um, it needs to be more developed. Um, but over the last probably decade, we've seen a lot more products come into the market, but mainly as a processed product. So juice or syrups or things of that nature, which ultimately come from, from South America usually. But uh, as far as fresh fruit, there is uh, some demand for that fruit, but it's very hard to find at this point because there's very few places in the United States that actually produce fresh fruit. Uh, South Florida is one. Uh, California is another and very little else in the continental United States. Now, I have to admit, and I'm probably in the minority here, but I'm sure I have seen passion fruit before at a grocery store or a farm stand or whatever, but I'm not sure I've ever looked in something and known it was a passion fruit. Can you describe for me what exactly a passion fruit is? Sure. Um, and first, I'll say you probably have not seen it if you're going just to a regular grocery store, because it's it is like I say, it's hard to find. Um, so it's a it's a tropical fruit. It's usually round, about the size of a tennis ball, maybe as a large size. Uh, it can come in different colors, uh, like a, a red or a deep kind of burgundy color, or or in a yellow color. And so what that fruit is um, when it's cut open is that the the outside the rind or the skin is fairly thick and the inside has a lot of pulp and some very small seeds and generally what's what's done when you eat it um, fresh is you cut it in half and then you have essentially two little bowls and you just scoop it out with a spoon and eat everything so you would eat the seeds uh, that and the pulp at the same time. Um, you can also scoop it out and, and use it as a topping on ice cream or some other thing like that. Uh, and, and it's very, very fragrant and very fruity tropical flavor to it, which is uh, uh, extremely nice. So if you, you know, it's kind of almost like uh, we've had a fresh mango. It has that kind of aroma and, and fresh flavor to it. Now, obviously, the United States has been the beneficiary of a global fruit and vegetable trade for a long time now. But I am curious, in places where passion fruit have historically grown more readily than they grow in the United States, are they consumed more in other places in the world, or is this sort of an emerging fruit globally? Well, absolutely, it's um, more consumed in other places in the world. And because it's a tropical fruit, um, and it originated in Brazil. So that's kind of the center of origin of, of this species. So, And there's many different species of these passion fruit type vines. Um, and uh, so there's large amounts of consumption in Brazil, uh, Peru, Ecuador, uh, Colombia, those, those sort of countries down south, but also in other areas that have, have adopted it. So Australia, uh, places in Africa, South Africa, Rwanda, uh, Kenya. There's also uh, New Zealand and, uh, you know, South uh, Asia, like India and China as well. So it sounds like it's really proliferated much more in the Southern Hemisphere than the Northern. Correct. Correct. In the Northern Hemisphere, it's, it's more of a... Uh, a rare type of delicacy type thing because it's it's we we can't grow it 
efficiently in a large amount of places in the northern hemisphere. So it makes it more difficult to get access. While these fruit are have thick skins, they're not especially great for long travel um, if they've got to come from a long distance. So, um, you know, post-harvest wise, they, they may shrivel or they may uh, get spots on them or, you know, have some other defect that they just don't last that long. So it sounds like they're, if the Gulf Coast were to make serious investments in passion fruit growing, there would likely be some sort of consumer education necessary to help people like me better understand exactly what this fruit is and why you might want to eat it. Absolutely, yes. There would be a strong consumer education component to this. Uh, I believe that once a consumer uh, figures out what it is and tastes it, they would be hooked. Uh, you know, it's that type of, of product, which is just uh, mind-blowing uh, flavor and, and aroma to it. Um, so, yes, that would be uh, something that would have to develop a market for that. Now, there are certain communities that have that built-in market. You know, Hispanic are usually familiar with this. Um, some of the Asian cultures are very familiar with this. So there are pockets of communities where you could uh, begin to sell to uh, quite readily. Um, but the larger mass of, of people probably need to uh, see it to believe it first. What are some of the other concerns? I'm sure there's a lot to think about when you're looking at transplanting a fruit from a completely different part of the globe and trying to grow it in Mississippi and Alabama and Florida and places where I'm sure there are insects, there are predators, there are other plants that it's competing with that it's never really competed with before. Absolutely, those are issues. And uh, frankly, we don't really know a lot about the best way to grow them, what kind of pests they're going to have. And, and for the most part, getting varieties, which ones grow the best here, we don't really know. Um, so there's a lot of upfront research that we need to do first um, before we start really recommending anybody make large investments in planting this crop. But um, what we're looking at now is seeing it kind of in the future and saying, hey, if we start working on this now, you know, five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, maybe we'll have be developed enough so that, and the, you know, if the weather has changed enough, the climate has changed enough, to become right for this, then we're ready to go and we're ready to start recommending certain varieties and certain ways to grow it and certain trellising systems and, and fertilizer and irrigation and those sort of things. If I'm not mistaken, you just recently came back from a passion fruit conference in Florida. Can you tell us a little bit how that went? Yeah, absolutely. So that conference was uh, funded by a USDA NIFA Specialty Crops Research Initiative grant. And so, you know, I wrote that grant uh, and had collaborators from the University of Florida, University of Georgia, University of Puerto Rico, the UC system, uh, and USDA ARS. So we all kind of got together and figured out how to uh, put on this program as two days of a conference of just getting information uh, we invited growers. We invited people who were in the already in the business of selling passion fruit, growing passion fruit, and um, just to have them talk 
and learn from each other what uh, we're doing here in the United States. And we also had someone uh, zoom in uh, from Australia and, and tell us what they do there. So it was really enlightening as to uh, how passion fruit is grown in South Florida, which is where we had the meeting, but also in other regions and find out what the interest is. And there seems to be a very strong interest in expanding this crop within Florida for sure, but also other areas of California um, been contacted from folks in, in Texas as well. So I think the interest is, is really there. It's just hasn't had much attention to it yet. Eric Staffney is a fruit and nut specialist at the Mississippi State Extension Service. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. Then at 10, it's Autocorrect. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Michael Guidry and for Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.